Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to 2 Samuel, at chapter 15, and you'll find this on page 266 in the Church Bibles. And uh, one other announcement that I meant to mention uh, this evening, uh, the Eastern Charge has an annual service in the Bangor Free Church, and so if you're interested, uh, there will be uh, an evening service in the Bangor Free Church on August 7th at 6 p.m., uh, so you can make a note in your calendars if you're interested in that as well. Second Samuel chapter 15, and turning uh, to verse 1 and reading into chapter 16 this evening. <clears throat> After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and to stand bef- beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel, who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us, and uh, quickly and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him, And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all all his servants passed by him, and all the Carathites and all the Pelathites and all uh, the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner 
and also in exile from your, your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ite answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ite, Go then, pass on. So Ite the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until, you, until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him, and his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there. Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him, with a couple of donkeys saddled bearing two hundred loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and the summer fruit are for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give, back, uh, will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, 
Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. When King David came to Behurim, uh, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of the King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei uh, said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, Abishai uh, the son of Zariah, said to the king, uh, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai, uh, And to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. David's life was a mess. Uh, his third-born son, Absalom, had killed his first-born son, Amnon, because his first-born son had violated one of his daughters, Tamar. And after Absalom killed uh, one of David's uh, sons, he fled uh, to the land of Geshur, uh, the land of his maternal grandfather, and he was in exile for three years. But you remember that one of David's commanders, a man named Joab, uh, wanted to bring Absalom back uh, to Jerusalem. And eventually he succeeded, and Absalom was brought back to Jerusalem. But David was not ready yet to uh, meet him face to face. He didn't want Absalom in his royal court. He said he couldn't see his face. But Absalom wasn't prepared uh, to have those conditions uh, remain the same. He put pressure on Joab to bring him face to face with David. And in the end, they too did come together. And we might think that because they physically came together, uh, because David kissed his son and Absalom uh, paid homage, as it were, to his father, that it seemed like things were going to be patched up, that things were going to be better. But the truth was very different. What was hidden under the surface was something very different in the heart of Absalom. And that Absalom had no interest in acknowledging his father as king or of living under his authority. In fact, Absalom was deceiving uh, in his maneuvering uh, during this time. And this evening we want to look at uh, what happens next as Absalom uh, conspires uh, to uh, overthrow David's reign. And we want to see that because work, God works even through the evil actions of men, then we are to be committed to the king even in dark times.
because God is working even through evil men's actions, we are still to give our loyalty to the one who the Lord has chosen. And we want to look at uh, especially the uprising, uh, David or Absalom's conspiracy this evening. We want to look at it in two thoughts. We want to think about uh, the deception and then secondly uh, about the display of the king. So what happens in deceiving and how the king responds to that act of deception? Well, first then there's the deception uh, that Absalom uh, accomplishes. In chapter 15, at verse 1, it says, after this, uh, which is signaling to us that what is about to happen here follows naturally after Absalom is brought back into the royal court, that he has uh, been brought back to Jerusalem. He's now in the presence of David, and these things follow naturally afterwards. Absalom isn't wasting time. Uh, he is capitalizing on his uh, being restored in the house of David. But you can look at those words in another sense as well. Because when it says, after this, Absalom uh, acted, it's telling us that he's doing these things after David extended kindness to him. David initially did not want to see his son. But eventually David did uh, bring him back. And he did kiss Absalom. That there was that uh, desire uh, that things would be right between them. So what Absalom is doing here is he is acting after David has shown that kindness to him. Again, highlighting that what is happening here is not just uh, a grudge uh, of David doing wrong to Absalom or David's failures, but more than that, that Absalom is not interested in being reconciled with his father. He has other initiatives that are propelling him forward. In spite of the fact that David has welcomed him, he is still acting as he does. And so we're seeing here something of a deep-seated resentment uh, against his father. But the, the deception or the rebellion that comes against David here is sparked by Absalom's conduct. And we're told here how Absalom does it. Uh, it, it highlights a number of things that he did. One of the big things that Absalom did is, is that he got himself a chariot. Uh, and he got himself a chariot with horses. That might sound like uh, a very minor point, but it's telling us something important about Absalom. If someone rolled out a red carpet and there were microphones at the end of that carpet, you would think that that must mean uh, a celebrity is coming. This is an influencer. This is someone of a public figure that is coming here and they're going to address the general public. The red carpet is telling you something. And in the same way here, the chariot with the horses is telling us something. That Absalom wants to present himself, not just as the king-in-waiting, but he's trying to present himself as a certain kind of king-in-waiting. He is going to be the king-in-waiting that embodies everything that the Israelites thought a king should be. You remember how the Israelites were constantly wanting to be like the nations around them, to have a king who would go out and fight in their battles. And the Israelites were constantly being warned, put not your trust in princes, put not your trust in chariots. The king is not to acquire many chariots. Why? Because people's focus, their, their reliance would shift to their military strength. But here is Absalom saying, I am going to embody 
all of those progressive ideals that you think will give us strength and power. I will be that kind of king that will bring glory to this kingdom. You think about it. The chariots have no practical purpose. In the mountainous terrain of Jerusalem, chariots aren't going to be very helpful. But it's the symbol. It's the symbol that this is a king like the nations. And so something that has no practical purpose. And in fact, this seems to be the first time that chariots are mentioned in Jerusalem in history. Absalom is trying to communicate something. I'm going to be a glorious and powerful king. I'm the king that you've always wanted. I'm going to be different than the king you have at present. And so it's a spectacular show, which is why he has these 50 people going out before him. It's to draw attention to this, this public show that he is doing. He's trying to capture the hearts of the people. But he did more than this. It tells us that he would rise early and he would go beside the way of the gate, the road before the gate where people would go uh, to adjudicate or to have their cases uh, met for judgment. Uh, people could come from all over if they were wanting to have difficult issues resolved. And there would be those judges who would sit in judgment over their cases. But Absalom would swoop in and he would intercept them beforehand. And he would tell them that their, their cause was right and good. The problem is, is there's no one here to deal with it. The problem is, is that the government that exists right now can't live up to the expectation. And then he begins to present himself as the natural solution. If only I were the judge, then I would give justice. And not only is he saying that he would pass judgment, but what is being implied there is he would, he would give judgment in their favor. He's already uh, convinced that their side is right. He's, he's assuring them that he is on their side. And so again, he is, he is saying something that is wooing the people. He is captivating them by coming alongside them as one who would make things right. The present state of things is falling apart. It's a problem. But Absalom says, I can fix it. If only I were the one who was leading. The third way that Absalom was conspiring is, is that he would go out when people would try to pay homage to him because he is the king's son. Absalom would instead act as though that didn't mean anything to him. That he would go out and take hold of them and kiss them as though he wanted to honor them. That his real interest was not in power or being in a position himself, but rather that he wanted to be one who was for the people. That his real interest was for them. And so he is uh, what many times people think of the cynical politician uh, who portrays themselves as one of the people here is Absalom coming across saying, I'm just one of them. That my real interest is to serve others. And so in all of these ways, uh, he, is, he is captivating the people. It was a false show of humility in order to gain the favor of the people. And it tells us there as a result in verse 6 that Absalom stole the hearts of the people. When we hear that, we think naturally of feelings and affections. And then feelings and the affections are involved in this. But it's interesting, it's more than that. Because when we look at this phrase, stole the hearts elsewhere in scripture, it's not focusing primarily on the feelings, but on the mind. 
There's another passage in scripture. You remember when Jacob was fleeing and he took the livestock and he was going to take his wives and he was going to run away from Laban, his uncle. It tells us in Genesis that when he did it, it says Jacob tricked Laban, the Arabian, by not telling him that he intended to flee. It's the same language. He stole the heart of Laban when he was going to flee. That doesn't mean that he won the the feelings of Laban. It means that he tricked him. He deceived him. Laban was duped by not recognizing what was coming his way. And in the same way, it's saying that Absalom acted in a way that the people were deceived. They were led to believe one thing when the reality was the exact opposite. They were led to believe that Absalom would be a better king. He was their solution. That he was a king who was fit to reign over them. When in reality, Absalom was not a king fit to rule over them, but was one who was trying to usurp the authority of David. And so this rebellion here is uh, stirred by Absalom's uh, deception. But the the men of Israel then were uh, led astray uh, by these deceptive tactics that Absalom planted in their minds. He made them dissatisfied. If only I were king, if only I were judge, then things would be better. Meaning there's something wrong with the way things are at present. It would get better if Absalom was in charge. But his real uh, deceptiveness is really just a mirroring of the deceptiveness of sin itself. What makes sin so deceptive and the tactics of Satan so deceptive is is that sin never seems to be dangerous. Sin is presented as something of a solution. Sin is presented to us as something that'll make things better. It'll make you happier. It will make things go along smoother if we simply follow the sinful course. And taken up with that lie, we find ourselves rejecting God and his ways and ultimately moving in a direction that would lead us to ruin. So just as the people of Israel were led astray by Absalom, the scripture says that we too can reject the truth and be deceived by a lie. None of us like to be deceived. None of us like going shopping and finding something and seeing how it seems to be so good, only to find afterwards that it was a lie, uh, that what we had already was better than the product we bought. We don't want to be taken advantage of. And it's in those moments that we ultimately say there is a such thing as truth because there's such thing as lies. We don't want to be led down the wrong path. And scripture teaches us that we are oftentimes uh, led against God's word and we can be deceived into sin. Even later in chapter 16, you remember, it tells us about Shimei, uh, how he was cursing David. You remember what he was doing there? He was casting thrones and, and cursing at David. Why? He was saying all these things have come upon him because he was a man of blood. Now Shimei was thinking about Saul's death and no doubt the rumors about David's involvement about the end of Saul's reign. You remember how the book of Samuel was very careful to say that David never fought in that battle with the Philistines, that David had no part in the death of Ishbosheth, that he had no part in the death of Abner, 
but there could be rumors. And there could be people who are buying into those rumors. And they look at David as someone who is got blood on his hands. And here is a man who doesn't understand the situation, but he is still accusing David of being wrongheaded in the way that he uh, had conducted himself. So it is easy to be led astray in different ways. We see that with the people of Israel, but we also see that with Shimei. So the rebellion is one that is uh, stirred because of a, a sense of dissatisfaction with the way things are, but also the lure of something better. Things could be better if you simply followed this solution that is being proposed. We're told then as well that this rebellion is stirred uh, by the deceptive tactics of Absalom against even David. Uh, he went to King David and he asked for permission to go to Hebron to pay a vow to the Lord, literally to, to serve the Lord, that is to worship, to offer sacrifice. He tells David that what he is going to do is a fulfillment of his vow to God that if he should come back to Jerusalem, then he would, he would offer worship to God uh, for his goodness to him. And so David's last words to his son are, go in peace. But Absalom is not thinking about peace. He's going for war. And so he leaves his father to go and to conspire and to ignite this rebellion. He brings 200 men from Jerusalem uh, with a practical purpose. Their presence serves as support for his cause. And if they act out or if they speak out, they endanger themselves because they will be exposed before a great company. And so their support shows that even the city of Jerusalem is behind Absalom. Absalom has conspired this uh, very uh, well, even getting one of David's trusted advisors, Ahithophel. You remember Ahithophel was most likely Bathsheba's grandfather. And if that's so, it explains why he has switched sides here to supporting Absalom. And in all of this, it tells us that the conspiracy grew strong. The idea of deposing or even killing the reigning king. And when David heard all these things, David decided it is time to flee. Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape from us from Absalom. David wouldn't have had any idea how big this rebellion was. How many, even within the city of Jerusalem, were now siding with Absalom. And so he decides uh, it must be time to go. The, uh, the de deception of Absalom uh, had successfully brought about the rejection of the king. And it tells us then that David fled. And in verse 17, it tells us all the people went after him, his servants, and they halted at the last house. You think about when times come to an end. You may be in a season of life or maybe you can remember a season where things are coming to an end. Maybe it's your time at work at a certain location. Maybe it's leaving a home and you're closing the door for the last time. Suddenly it hits you, the weight of what's happening. Something is no longer going to be true. Something now is changing in your life. Things are coming to an end. And it tells us here that at that moment, as they're leaving the city of Jerusalem, they halt. They're, they're looking back and they're seeing that something is ending. And the weight of it is heavy. What has happened here is the people have rejected their king. And now what is going forward is going to be something different. And it is something that is uh, bringing uh, great pain to them.
David leaves with a sizable company, uh, uh, including 600 Gittites, uh, who appear to be a contingent of Philistines that had been won over uh, to his cause. Included as well as a man named Ite, uh, who is under uh, double oath, says that he will follow David uh, wherever he goes. David's son, Absalom, wanted nothing to do with David. He, but here is Ite, someone who had only recently come to David, and he was willing to risk everything for him. It's a, it's a marvelous contrast, but it shows us how important and how God gives encouragement to us. This is David's darkest time, but in David's darkest times, God gives him an Ite. He gives him someone who is a supporter, and encouragement to him when other people are abandoning him. That's God's gift to David. And it's not something to treat lightly. It's something to be grateful for. And we should be thankful and grateful for the encouragements that friends can be to us in our dark times as well. So there's this deception. It is one that is raised up by Absalom, making the people believe a lie, believing something would be better if they simply turned to him turning away from God's word, and ultimately the people's hearts are stolen uh, after Absalom. But there's also the response or the display of the king and how he responds. After he decides to flee, uh, we are told about two things about his response. The first is his dependence in faith, and the secondly, his dependence is marked in terms of weeping. In verse 23, uh, it tells us that when David is leaving, uh, all the land wept and all the, as the people passed by and the king crossed the brook Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. David has his people coming out to him. He has Levites, people like Abiathar and Zadok coming out. But David says to go back. He remembers the story of Israel. They once before thought that if the ark came out with them, it would guarantee success. And David says, we don't need to do that. The ark should be with the people because the ark represents the promises of God. If God wants me to be brought back, he will bring me back. And so David here is expressing his dependence, not on a physical object, but he's depending on the mercy of God. If I find favor in God's sight, he will restore me. But there's a a faith-filled aspect to that. Again, even when he is talking about Shimei and they're wanting to cut off his head, David says, don't. He says, it may be that God will turn his cursing into my blessing. And so once again, David is entrusting himself to the mercy of God. He's depending on God to work through this situation, entrusting that God is still sovereign through it. And you notice that in all of this, David uh, doesn't become passive either. He, uh, he is deciding to flee, but he still tells his uh, loyal servants to go back. He tells Zadok and Abiathar, uh, he tells uh, Hushai that they are to go back and to be uh, his ears and to be his messengers about what is going on in Jerusalem, what Absalom is doing. In all of this, we're seeing that to be uh, people who trust in the sovereignty of God and in the sovereign will of God doesn't make us pacifists. 
David could believe that God is sovereign over all things and he could still plan. He could still seek to be taking advantage of the situation and to try to make the situation better, even while he knew that ultimately it wasn't up to him to correct it. He was prevented from idolatry and trusting in himself while he looked uh, to God ultimately. So all of these things show David's faith as he's crossing the Kidron Valley. But also we see uh, his weeping in verse 30. It tells us that when he went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, he went weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. Again, this is David's darkest hour. What is he weeping over? No doubt he's weeping in part over his son. The estrangement that has happened between them. Matthew Henry captures it when he says, He could not but weep to think that the one who had so often lain in his arms should thus lift up his heel against him. And David now is living with the failure of that relationship between father and son. A pain that he lives with. He has failed his son. His son has rebelled. And yet this is the reality that he's faced with. But David's weeping is not only about his son. It's also for the kingdom. Because the interests of the nation are bound to the word of God. And in rejecting the king, they are rejecting the sovereignty of God's will over them. What will become of the nation? What will become of the kingdom of Israel? when they don't embrace God's word. And so David is weeping as he leaves, not just because he's lost control over the city. He's weeping because he sees what sin has done. His son has rejected him, but he sees a kingdom that is turning away from God's truth as well. And so he is marked by weeping as he leaves. David's weeping Uh, though is something that foreshadows the son of David. A thousand years later, the Gospels tell us about how the son of David also wept. Jesus, as he came to Jerusalem and as he reflected over the city and what was about to take place when he came to Jerusalem, it tells us that when he came into Jerusalem, he wept, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Not because he had failed. Not because of any sins in himself. But because he saw a city. People who were rejecting God's word. They were people who had been deceived. And their hearts had been deceived and stolen by sin. And they were rejecting their king. And so Jesus wept over the city even as he entered it before his passion. It was not on account of his own sin, but because their hearts had been deceived by sin. In the midst of all of this, we see a parallel that the Gospels draw attention. You remember how John's Gospel makes a point of that, saying that Jesus crossed over the Kidron. Why does John include that detail? But that John wants to touch on something and say, you remember how the king in the Old Covenant had that experience? His darkest hour was when he was rejected by his own people. And now John is saying the Messiah had the same experience. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. They rejected their own king. 
and it was an, uh, an experience of being sent off and rejected by them as a result. But in the midst of all of this, Jesus entrusted himself to the will of God. When Jesus went to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, which is that region around the Kidron Valley, when Jesus went there, he knew that he was going to be betrayed. He wasn't surprised by a betrayer trying to take away or to overthrow him. Jesus knew that his betrayer was at hand, but he was entrusting himself to God nevertheless. He allowed himself to be betrayed uh, in order to deliver sinners from the deception of sin and to make known to us the truth of God and his grace. What's our problem by nature? We can be deceived, deceived by lies, lies that tell us it would be better if God was not king over us, lies that tell us that we can solve the problems without God. But the truth is, is that we need God and that it's better to live under God. How are those lies going to be dispelled? Only when the truth is made clear to us. How is the truth going to be made clear to us? When the king acts righteously. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, it is to atone for sin. But part of the wisdom of God is also in dispelling lies. So the truth of God's character is made known. So that we would know that God is good and that he is worthy to be trusted. We should remain committed to the king even when others reject him. We should recognize that he is one who delivers us from sin. And it's not one to live for sin ourselves, but that would ultimately lead to our own ruin. Jesus was rejected and eventually put to death, but in the eyes of the Lord, he found favor. And he was raised to newness of life. Instead of believing a lie about God, we are to come to realize that God reigns over all and he is worthy of our faith. You remember that David said, about Shimei, it may be that the Lord will turn his cursing into my blessing. The gospel tells us that is what God does. He turns cursing into blessing. That Jesus was cursed so that those who believe in him will be blessed. That's the work of God. And we can celebrate these truths as we see a king who is worthy of our trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about uh, the deceptiveness of sin, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, lead us in your truth, that we would recognize uh, that uh, we can be so easily led astray as the men of Israel uh, were led astray. Help us, Lord, to realize uh, that your will is right and good and that we are to put our trust in the one that you have chosen, in your anointed servant. And so we pray that we would uh, marvel at uh, the faith of the Lord Jesus and how he was willing to entrust himself uh, to your care, even when it meant his rejection and ultimately his death. Lord, bless